Hi, this is Jackie Fry, Design Ops Leader and Part-Time Sociologist. And this is Allison Rand, Design Ops Leader and Cognitive Neuroscientist in Training. And you are listening to In Common. Woo! Allison, what is going on? Oh my word, Jackie. I, I literally have no idea. No idea. This is the craziest experience I have ever had in my life. And I lived in New York during September 11th. That's wild. I only experienced that from afar. I've lived in Atlanta for most of my formative and adult years, but I, I was talking to somebody the other day and I was describing that we're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we are both now completely, uh, social distanced uh, family. We're not in shelter in place mode, but we are, we are socially distant and being respective of those recommendations. But I've described uh, the experience of this, like this tangible feeling in the air or like around people. Um, I lived in Florida during Hurricane Andrew and mm. I described it, and somebody else said that there's like, this is the only time I've ever felt something like this is, is uh, right before Hurricane Andrew hit. There was just this like, unknown and this sort of feeling of like what's gonna happen and you don't know but you're like bracing you know it's just it's an odd feeling but you work remotely so how how has this experience been different for you and the way you work yeah i have worked remotely for the last two years with envision now with automatic in the past this is exceptionally different mostly because my entire family is home now schools have been shut down in New York. I have youngest child. She has viral induced asthma. Mm -hmm. So we took her out of school a long time ago and my husband's working from home as well. And we're not letting anybody in our house because well, you know, we've been afraid for a while, especially because of for her, for her health. So we have no um, childcare. So it's incredibly different from being able to drop my kid off at school. My husband goes to work, I get home by 8.30, I get my coffee, I get my breakfast, I sit down and I get myself ready for the day. And then I have basically until like 6.30 to focus on work. And right now, um, and I have a really difficult time context switching and I'm doing nothing but context switching while also being incredibly like hyper aware of the things that are happening. Literally, it feels like on an hourly basis, the news that's coming in from New York about shelter in place or this or that, whatever. So it's very hard. It's a very different situation. And like I could get up and go to work and have regular conversations with my colleagues, but we're all kind of talking about the same things that you're probably talking about. And you're just working remotely now, right? Right. right. I mean, we, I, I work in a pretty flexible environment. So I do work from home, but this is so much different than that. And I know that you and I want to talk about remote working. I know that's a topic that we, we want to have and probably will continue having um, in the future um, because none of that's going to go away. In fact, my husband and I were theorizing that this might change the way people work once we experience this for an extended time. Yes. So it's very interesting to think about this this situation and how this might change things. But yeah. A hundred percent. I've been thinking about that so much. And I've been thinking a lot about the difference between remote work versus distributed work. 
and how remote this feels right now. Um, and it's, you know, it's, some people might say it's semantics, but I do think that we all are in our own islands right now. Like we are truly remote from one another. We, we're, we're being told that we have to social distance ourselves. We are, nobody is going into the office. Like the subways are empty. Like we are all working completely remotely, like on a remote island versus when you think about distributed work, it just looks like, oh, we have a company that where people work from anywhere in the world and we're entirely distributed. Isn't that great? And I think it's a really interesting um, play on words, but it's important, especially at this time. And and I also think a lot of people are, or not, I don't think I know, a lot of people have been reaching out to me, certainly in the beginning, saying, how do you do it? What are the tools that we should be using? And that's relatively easy to get up and running, in my opinion. And I know it's, it's, it's a little bit of a learning curve for a lot of organizations. But um, I had been asked to give a talk that's been canceled about remote culture. And you and I talk about this all the time, culture design, culture design, but now especially, what are the ways in which we're not only learning how to work remotely and remote from one another, but how are we going to foster relationships with one another through this really just incredibly um, unstable time that we, with no clear end in sight. Hey Darby, can you step out, honey? Is there, sorry, my son's walked in. That's okay. Okay, okay, sorry, uh, sorry, y'all. I had to pause uh, our recording because my son just walked in, which is a perfect <laughs> example of what right. we're doing. But right. that's also something we're trying to normalize. Just like your kids are gonna walk in, uh -huh. um, you're like, it's stuff is gonna happen, and just be as flexible as possible. Mm -hmm. But also, it's just like I just want to recognize, like I'm just, you know, I can't complain. Um, although I find myself wanting to, I just like, I'm on the very lucky side of this. And I, I think that's, you know, a reminder. And I don't know that I was there, there yesterday, yeah. uh, but I'm there today. I'm there right now as we're recording this. So well, sorry about the interruption. <laughs> well, we're definitely in a much more privileged position, both of us. I think it's also so nice to take moments and be thankful for, you know, our connections and each other and these moments with, you know, our friends and our family and all of those things. And because otherwise you're just going to go fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready for this week's topic? Let's do it. Let's do it. Allison, your article on process by design spoke to my very being soul. Like I, Cannot tell you how much I relate to it. It's amazing. And the topic of today's podcast. Thank you. Well, what inspired you to write it? <sighs> what inspired me to write it? So I've been on kind of a journey, I feel, for the last year or so. Been working with an executive coach. Bless shout them. out to, gosh, shout out to Jessie. She is amazing. Um, and she asked me at one point to, to go through this exercise of writing down my life in, 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 in just sort of, in, not in the long like journal life story, but really like, if you have like, she's like, if you have line paper, just 
one line for anything that was monumental in your life or significant in your life. I was born here and then this happened, da, 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 in whatever way makes sense to you. And so I did that. And as I started to go through that, I started to really see all the, these connection points through my journey because I was feeling really lost for a while and I didn't really understand where or why I was ending up in the places I was ending up or how I ended up and, or really how to take all of these opportunities and become much more intentional about forging my path ahead. And so it was an incredibly helpful exercise because it allowed me to really open myself up to me, my history, my ancestors, all of the things I felt like I had been missing because you know, a big part of who I am is the fact that my, uh, you know, is, is founded or grounded in the fact that my mom died when I was a kid. And so mm -hmm. I've, I've always struggled a little bit with trying to figure out my place. And mm -hmm. so this journey exercise really helped me. And so that was kind of the genesis of this article, because I, I was not only trying to figure out my own place, but then really asking myself, what's my responsibility now as, um, you know, a Latina woman in a, in a, in a higher level position in a, you know, in a field that's very ivory tower, like what is my responsibility to everyone else or to all of the other others? Mm, you said it. You, you talked about finding design and you talked about it as this place where you found other misfits. And this isn't the first time I've heard design described as misfit culture. Mm. Um, and I mean, I not only listened to the misfits, I definitely, like, I thought I was just the most rebellious human being and, like, <laughs> was such a rule follower. Um, but, <laughs> but how, you, so you, you found design, like, I definitely recommend everyone read the article. We're not going to go into all the details, but you found design and you, and you described it as this sort of being a misfit with other misfits. And, and talk me through that experience and, and what that, and the in sort of that inclusive belonging experience felt like for you. Well, a lot of that goes back to also who I am, where I come from, being half Puerto Rican, half Jewish, and never quite fitting in either place. I mean, growing up in New York City, I was a ton of my friends have were and still are very similar of like of mixed race a lot of puerto rican jews new yorkans dominican jews whatever like we all had our people that was like the community that i was raised in but i was always different uh and once i left new york and I went to college in North Carolina, it became super stark how different I was. It's like, and there was no real whole community for me. I, you know, I would be connected to my Puerto Rican community, but I would always feel like it didn't quite fit, fit in and the same for the other side of me. And I was always super into the arts and also really good at math and science and kind of found my way, like muddled my way through college and muddled my way through post-career at IBM. And somehow I was like, this person that had all of these things or could do a multitude of things or had a multitude of interests. And I gravitated always towards more artistic people. Mm. And when I found those people in this world that had really 
just started to be named, Mm -hmm. um, which at the time for me, that first experience was working at Huge when Huge was, I was like employee number 29 or something. Wow. And they were just beginning to talk about user experience and what design meant to like the end-to-end journey as a user, blah, blah, blah. Wow. Thinking about things from a much more like academic point of view. And I was like, oh, I've met my people, I feel like. But, it, but then even more so, I landed at Hot Studio with Maria Judice, who is so incredible, Staten Love Island, her. beautiful her. woman who, you know, found me and was like, you were on brand when I found you. And it really was, she had just developed this incredible culture of artists and and scientists and deep thinkers and you know introverts and extroverts and she really embraced this culture of just you know misfits weirdos whatever it was but we were making really good stuff and it was so well supported by the community the work was you know the 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 organization was growing and I was helping build the New York studio and so I really felt like it found my people and it was so easy to relate to them in a certain way. Like in a lot of ways, like you, like I always followed the rules in a certain way. I'm like very type A and everything needs to be done in a certain type of way, but finding that space for designers and understanding those types of people and speaking the same type of language was really like where it all landed for me. It's like, Oh, I can help you while also feeling a part of this. It's like being a part of something, you know? So you talked in your article about onlyness. I yeah. mean, and I cannot, I'm, I'm half Filipino, half uh, mixed sort of Eastern um, European. And growing up in Atlanta was, I think people would call me like an, like a, an alien, like oh as God. in, yeah, or they, uh, or you get the question, "What are you? What are you?" Yep. And it's not like a nice question. It's like you're like, "I'm human. Like I don't know what you want me to say," or are you, you know, are you this? As if it's you know the first thing to know about me. Um, but I, 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 I have to say, I, I growing up here in Atlanta, and you described your experience going to school in the South. I grew mm-hmm. up here in the South, um, mm-hmm. and. I definitely related so much with that onlyness. And mm. I think a lot of other people who felt like an only, I gravitated towards them. They saw like life differently, mm. um, perspective differently. And generally they were into art and music or they're into computers and tech or mm-hmm. weird stuff like that. And I just related to those people so much more that I could relate to like cookie cutter culture that I was clearly never going to fit in. And, and honestly, I still, I still live in the South. I I'm in Atlanta and I still, you know, experience that on a day-to-day basis. I, 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 I completely hear you. And I talk about this in the articles that I really learned mostly about being an only when I moved to the South and being continually asked that question, what are you? like, wait a minute. Oh my gosh. What, wait, what am I? And it really starts to get to you or it just makes you think so much about, I mean, even existentially or certainly existentially, like, oh my gosh, am I for God's sakes? Uh, 
am I be am I defining myself by my ethnicity or my gender or what? I don't know. Like certainly, when you're young, it feels even that much more um, assaulting, almost. Yeah, it re- it's really difficult to be continually asked that question because it's like, what does it even fucking matter? It's so weird. Yeah. Anyway, but like, I guess everybody's just trying to figure stuff out, but um. And often, I think after a while, you become so used to being that person. And I had felt, my, felt myself being in that position, even though I had found a community of like-minded people through design, I had mm-hmm. always found myself being the only, the only woman of color in the room or the only woman, period, in the room, especially mm. as I progressed through my career. Mm. And, you know, and like experience like you, I'm sure all of these ridiculous tropes around like mousy or meek or whatever that it- I got bossy. I get, a, I get bossy. As I interrupt you, I was like, I got bossy. <laughs> I get aggressive. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember one time somebody, some, someone telling my colleague that she interrupts too much. The same day, someone else told me that I was too meek, that I didn't speak up enough. Like, what do we do with that? It was like, what I don't do know what to do with this information. Like, I'm trying my best. And, <laughs> <laughs> but I also, you know, at this point, and you and I have talked about this a ton, like, um, I am not in this conversation yet to take a stance on identity politics. I think I'm like, I'm in this conversation to talk about how over time it has just become more and more apparent that there are so many onlys everywhere. And even though we talk about this, but you look around and everything still looks the same. Right. So, yeah. So, I I mean, I love your article. Love it. I see myself in it for somebody who grew up and so rarely see, saw herself in anything because it, the, the, you know, I grew up and it wasn't for me. Media wasn't for me. It was, it was not, it was not designed for me, um, at least in America and in the South. Right. So I read your article and I'm like, oh my gosh, you understand. And, um, but I love it. And I have to ask you this question and we're talking about this on this podcast because what's this got to do with design ops? Like what, what do we do with this? Mm. You, you share your experience. I relate to that. I share my own experience, you know, just now, um, the butt of it. What, what does this got to do with design ops and what, what do we do mm-hmm. about understanding people's individual experiences? They're coming, um, as whole persons. Uh, to come come well, work in community with others? Well, uh, a couple of things. I think first that we have to stop talking about it as an exercise and we actually have to start doing. And so many conversations I've had with people are, this is really hard. We need to keep talking about it. We need to unpack this. How do we even begin? And for me, it just doesn't feel that hard. So I do believe there, and at my heart, in going through this journey, I've always had such a tremendous interest in impact work. And I believe that there is real impact work in what design operations can do and how we influence the way we think about hiring, how the makeup of our organizations, 
this mirrortocracy um, that Malcolm Gladwell talks about, which can only be reflected, you know, the mirror is the mirror, right? So um, we're all, our rooms are only gonna look like the people that we hire. And so how are we actualizing the change? How are we actualizing culture design? How are we having real self-awareness and design as we've talked about, Jackie? Like, wh how are we bringing this to the fore and really fighting for it and saying like, we, this, is a this is a priority. We cannot do good work in design if we are not reflective of our communities, it's just period yes. impossible. I would say this in the past at other organizations that I've worked at when I was the only woman walking into a, a client's office with a bunch of other men that were all the same. How are we even selling our work and saying that we understand the customer when we don't even look different? Like we are not representative of anything but this one thing. I, th I love this about you because you always bring it back to human-centered, uh, human-centered design, design thinking. And one of the, you know, requirements of that is empathy. And one of the requirements of that is, is sort of diversity of thought. You need different mm -hmm. perspectives. So we are, and I think a lot of design orgs, and I think that, so I just bring it all in. It's like, you talked about finding this group of misfits in design, these people with all these different experiences. Um, you talked about your own experience, right? And that you are diversity, not just in sort of race, gender, but in life experience. You experience something different than others and that has helped shape your perspective. And that's really important. Mm -hmm. And we don't want the meritocracy of everybody looking the same, thinking the same, going to the same schools, all coming out with the same perspective to drive solutions. Those are not, that's not the way forward. So we are intentionally saying in our companies and our um, in, in, in design orgs who in, try to go out and do human-centered design and design thinking, we must diversify our organizations. Now, to diversify your organization is one thing. To do that without intentionally redesigning your, your systems for inclusion mm -hmm. is, is, is a requirement as well. And I think so often they look at, oh, diversity is hard and not think about the inclusion piece, right? And that's, and it doesn't make for the best experience, the best employee experience, right? Tell me, tell me right. what you think about that. Like how, how does sort of like, when you think about the whole perspective of everything that it is, what we have to do in design, diversify our teams and, um, and then define, you know, design community and culture and all these systems that support the groups uh, in a way that they connect and trust one another. What, what, what did, how do you make of it? And how do you turn it into <laughs> goals and programs and the work you do in design ops? Well, that's hard. That's a lot. Sorry, right? I did it. <laughs> I, I did it, right? We, that's that what we do. It's a lot. <laughs> uh, and a lot of it really takes this thinking about system rewiring. Yes. Deeply thinking about system rewiring. And... Um, It'd be incredibly hard to answer that question <laughs> in the time we have left in this podcast, but I do believe- but it starts there, right? It, it starts it, there. Well, it certainly starts there, but that's, that's huge right? in and of itself. You know, change management and system rewiring and change management, but there has to be commitment from the top. Oh, my heavens, yes. There has got to be commitment from the top. And while design is growing and getting that voice, 
while design ops is a nascent discipline, there has to be support from the top for these types of things. But it also is this, it is a really kind of grassroots effort. We have to become much more intentional about how we're designing our cultures and our process and all of the things. And this is really, I believe, it is the responsibility of everybody, but I do believe that the drivers are going to be design ops leaders, the design ops leaders that actually care. And I think they carry the baton for design leadership, design management, with their strategy and buy-in of those, of those, you know, of leaders and managers, right? Yeah. And we have to be thinking about our designers as our customers. So if we're thinking as, you know, customer experience and employee experience is being inextricably tied, then we really do need to be thinking about our designer from a design ops perspective as our customer. And what does their journey look like? What does that experience look like from end to end from when we're, where we're meeting them? Are we meeting them where they're at or are we just waiting for them to come to us and find us? Because most people will not know to find us. Most people that we really want to have access to might not know that we even exist, right? So are we meeting people where they're at from even the very beginning of the journey? And then what does it look like through that journey in which we're actually building and fostering and nurturing an inclusive environment for everyone? And it's so much more relevant today because remote distributed organizations can often say like, we are the most inclusive because we can hire from anywhere, but that doesn't stop the same exact things from happening because Mm -hmm. while you can hire from anywhere, unless you're like going into Nairobi and digging into their design scene, scene, which most people are not doing, you're really just pulling from the same pool. Yeah. So how are you thinking about that process? How are you being intentional about designing that process as the employee experience, as designers, and as you know, building this community? And we've said it a bunch of times in this conversation, but Bob Baxley talked about this as like culture design yes. uh, and, and thinking about that as, as really incredibly foundational to our organization's like process and good business. Because yes. at the end of the day, most companies hadn't been thinking about that, but that's really why they brought designers in to begin with, right? Is to think about how are we approaching our customer experience better? But then you had to bring design ops in to figure out how to manage the designers and how to actually scale that process. And now we have all of this process, process, people scaled, quote unquote, even though Middle. you know we don't, yeah. <laughs> but we sort of do. Um, how are we actually starting to think intentionally about the humans? having human experiences, designing products and experiences for other people. And bottom line, we know human-centered, you know, design, design thinking has some revenue impacts, but also being more inclusive in the way we think about designing our community, something, you know, I love to talk about. And so much of the system rewiring, I'm like the sociologist in my heart is just like, oh, this is amazing. Um, But you know, this, this type of work, inclusive operations, human-centered type thinking and, and designing around the employee experience as a design ops group, uh, it impacts the bottom line, uh, not right. just from a revenue, but people feel more connected. People feel uh, more like a sense of belonging. It's, it's good for business. It's this stuff that's good for business, not just, I mean, it's theoretical, but also it's good for business, Right. Right. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, you know, we are all humans having human experiences. And if we think of them separately, then we're doing ourselves, businesses are doing themselves a disservice. Hey, Allison, what do you say we do more talks on this topic? Because I think we were just starting to get in some good stuff and hopefully uh, there's so much more to dig in here. But what do, you, what do you say we talk more about this in the future and continue to talk Absolutely. I Let's love it. Let's do it. Sure. If you liked our chat today, uh, I would love to recommend some additional reading for you all. I've been getting really into, especially at the state we're in right now, The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker. I think it's really important to think about how we not only gather in person, how we gather community, how we gather you know, with individuals, and certainly how we're gathering remotely um, and to become much more intentional about how we're thinking about it, how we're building that community through these types of gatherings. Um, the book is great, but she also just did a write-up in the New York Times. She's actually going to be giving um, the keynote address at Advancing Research, which is coming up next week. Um, and I think her perspective on how we facilitate community through gathering is top-notch. So there you have it. Guess what? What? There's more in common. If you want more from me, Allison Rand. And me, Jackie Fry. Go to incommon.design. Alrighty, that's our show. Ciao. Talk soon. Bye.